The UVA Lifetime Learning Program in Alumni and Parent Engagement presents this recording of the 2014 Reunion Seminar, Healthcare, What is Next? with Arthur Garson, Jr., Director of the Center for Health Policy and Professor of Public Health Sciences and Public Policy. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started, and welcome to the 2014 Reunion Seminars. My name is Cindy Frederick, and I'm the Associate Vice President for Alumni and Parent Engagement and Annual Giving here at the University of Virginia. And these seminars are sponsored by uh, the Lifetime Learning Program in the Office of Engagement, as well as the Alumni Association. We're glad you're here. I'd like to introduce a couple of folks in the back. Before we start, there are our volunteers. We have Sydney and Jane, and they'll make sure that this seminar um, goes smoothly. And if you have a pen need or any other um, things, please see them. And other, one other housekeeping a note is if everyone can silence their cell phones for us, um, that'd be a, a great thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> what a good idea. Yeah, Tim's going to do that as well. What a good idea. And excellent. So is everyone having a great time so far? Yeah? Excellent. Well, it's absolutely gorgeous weather. I know we were thinking we might have rain, and I am so happy that it's gorgeous out for you all this weekend. Um, but it's my pleasure to now introduce to you our speaker today. And Dr. Arthur Tim Garson is an internationally recognized pediatric cardiologist who has served as UVA's Vice President and Dean of the School of Medicine, as well as Executive Vice President and Provost. He is currently a University Professor of Public Health Sciences and Policy. Additionally, Dr. Garson is the Director of UVA Center for Health Policy, which was established as a result of the collaborative effort of the School of Medicine, Department of Public Health Sciences, and the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. Tim is the author or co-author of eight books, including Healthcare, Half-Truths, Too Many Myths, Not Enough Reality. Dr. Garson is a national leader in academic medicine and healthcare policy. And I have seen Tim speak many times before, and I know you are in for a special treat. You are going to learn a lot of um, new information, but you are also going to have a lot of fun. But I want to forewarn you is that he wants participation. And I have seen him um, call out people. So stay alert, um, stay ready, and have a great time with Dr. Tim Garson. Please join me in welcoming to this seminar. Well, thank you, Cindy, and I hope uh, you don't need to hear me because you're going to be doing the talking, as Cindy figured out. Um, so it's, it's, this is supposed to be a fun hour, hour and 15 minutes, however we decide. You know, we can take a sunburn look at around 2 o'clock and see what people are thinking about. Um, this really is a participatory event, if I can get this where it belongs. Try that, better. What this is, uh, and there are some ringers here that I already recognize. So ringers uh, sing out loud and clear and we'll, we'll get the ball started that way. You're gonna get to vote. So you have here something that looks like this. And you get to vote. And these are really, it sort of says myth or truth. These are really true or false, sort of. And then we're going to talk with each other, and I'm going to listen. So I don't have to work very hard at all, which is why I'm just sort of sitting up here relaxed. So why don't we try out the first one for grins and say, our health care is second rate compared with other countries. And we get... Two votes. We get true or false. This is not hard. Um, so, our healthcare is second rate compared with other countries. How many would say true? Keep them up. One, two, three, four, five. How many would say false? Our healthcare is second rate compared with. Okay, so let's start. You're about to see how this works. With someone who said true. Who would like to start that ball rolling with why is it true? Yes, sir. Thank you. 
Oh, Cindy's going to give you a mic. Wow, holy miracle. I thought you just Lots of objective. Screen, okay. If anyone can hear me, raise your hand. There's lots of objective oh, okay. reasons why our health care isn't as good as other countries. Um, you know, mortality, infant mortality in the first year of life, we are not in the top three dozen countries. Terrific. Okay, another true. Our second, our healthcare is second rate compared with other countries. Who else said true? Cindy, behind you. Right here. Um, access. There, there. Tremendous amount of our population has little or little or no access to healthcare, other than the emergency room. Yes, you will recall there was a president a few presidents ago that said that that was all the uninsured needed was to go to the emergency room and get all that care. That would be a true or false coming up. Okay. Who said another true? Okay. We got a bunch of falses, so let's go with some of the falses. Um, I'll give the example that my daughter has a brain tumor, and she receives amazing care, and we are able to choose the protocol that she follows. In talking with friends who are in Australia, who are in the UK, who are in Canada, they do not have that flexibility to choose what they feel the best treatment would be for their child. They are told what will happen to their child, and I disagree strongly with that. Terrific. Another false. Yes, sir. I'm told uh, that the majority of the wealthy Canadians go south of the border to the United States for their health care. Um, let's stop there for a sec. Um, Tim, Tim, we're going to try and get your speaker up a little bit. The folks in the back cannot hear it. And they're very, they're very happy they can't hear it, though. No, they want to Just hear. watch them. They're smiling. They can't Can hear. sound check real quick? I want to make sure. Okay, everybody in the back here? I hope so. If you can't, we have hearing aids. <laughs> this, this talk is brought to you by the Department of Audiology if you can't hear this. Okay, let's come back to Canada. So who knows what a single payer is? We're going to come back to this, I promise. Any of you that are old enough to remember nested do loops, we're, we'll get there. Okay, so <laughs> that, that would be Fortran. Okay, so a single payer is... One insurance company. One insurance company. Okay. So, what's an example? Who has a single payer? What country has a single payer? Great Britain. No. What's another one? Canada. France. No. Nobody. One. Canada. Okay. Here's the deal. In Canada. It is illegal to have private insurance. They don't have it. So Detroit is the private insurance place for Canada. Okay? So everybody else has two systems. Single payer, right, is the government. Single payer means that, right, that there is only one payer. But just go off to Harley Street in London and you can get plenty of health care and pay for it yourself. And there are insurance companies. I, the reason I'm a little peaked looking probably is I was in Australia yesterday and talking with the major health insurance company in Australia. And it's huge. It's called Medibank. It ain't no single payer, folks. So single payer, the only one of those is Canada, which is very interesting because it really creates people uh, who want something other than the government to be paying for their health care. They can pay for it, but they got to come south of the border. Okay, so that's single payer. What people hear, uh, and there's been a lot of discussion, if we live long enough to get down to number five about Obamacare, um, there's a lot of discussion about where that's going in terms of was it the disguised single payer? 
Well, it will never be the disguised single payer because we'll always have private insurance companies no matter what. So maybe single safety net is a better term here. Okay, so our healthcare second rate compared to other countries, some more falses. Yes, sir. Um, I guess I'd, I'd just like to say that um, it's false because if you can't afford great insurance in this country, you can get the best health care in the world. Okay. So that's sort of the two of you would agree. What would happen if I changed this to our medical care is second rate compared with other countries? Uh-oh. Okay, so this red at the start, our health care is second rate. You're getting there. This is not going to be a fun hour, right? <laughs> That's why the book was called Healthcare Half-Truths, right? There's some true in here and some less than true in here. Okay. What's the difference between medical care and health care? Medical care is for when you are sick, okay? Another, medical care. The the don't forget nurses. <laughs> don't, don't forget patients. I think it means the medical care is after you've gained access to the care system, but your health care is dependent upon whether or not you first get access to the medical care. Okay, I want to cut more medical care, health care. Yeah, that's why it's so easy. It Go ahead. Seems like healthcare is the system of providing medical services. That it's okay. a much broader, much broader system. Ah. Okay, so a bunch of you have said broader about healthcare, and a bunch of you have said narrower about medical care, doctors, patients, nurses, families. Yes. Healthcare is more preventative, whereas medical care treats the actual diagnosis or illness or disease. Okay, so what, I want to come back to the person that answered the first question first. And so, what's a good index of health care? Hands on. Okay. The two big indices of health care, life expectancy, infant mortality, health care, okay, big, right, the World Health Organization just added a 12th category to life expectancy for, for how one of the categories of, of how you can be categorized as death, death due to terrorism was just added. Now. What exactly does that have to do with doctors, nurses, and hospitals? Nothing. So healthcare is huge. Healthcare is murders, drug abuse, accidents, terrorism, oh yes, and medical care. So there is a paper long time ago, but everybody keeps referring to it, in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1993 that says medical care is responsible for 10% of life expectancy. Medical care is responsible for 10% of life expectancy. As in, what docs, nurses, operating rooms, fancy stuff, gizmos, 10%. 40% lifestyle, 30% genetics, 20% public health, 10% medical care. So medical care is something that we spend, we're going to come to in a minute, about how much we spend on some of this stuff. Yeah. So seatbelts, immunizations, that kind of stuff. Hmm? 
they, they sort of categorized it as, as sort of they took, yeah, it could be, they took it out. Um, so now back to, and, and you're right, it's, it's, it's worse than 30. We're in the 50-50 club. So our life expectancy and our infant mortality bounce around 50th in the world. 50th. So our health care is terrible, ladies and gentlemen. Our health care is terrible. Now, our medical care. Our medical care isn't as terrible as our health care. And as you point out, if you've got money, and if you've got the way to get there, our medical care system is among, in certain things, among the best. Breast cancer mortality is a medical care index. Okay? We're number one in the world. We're the best in the world for breast cancer mortality. We ain't so hot for prostate cancer mortality. Girls take better care of themselves than boys. We know that. Okay, so on the other hand, don't get too happy about our medical care in that there is a, an index of preventable deaths, like maternal death. You wouldn't think that you, know, you should have a maternal death in the United States. So pneumonia in the hospital. We are 18th out of 18 in the world, as in at the bottom of the 18 for preventable deaths. So we ain't that good in some of those measures, neither. I didn't teach English. All right, now there are certain islands, childhood cancer being one, um, where we're really good. Now, here's an interesting tidbit that the mortality Mortality, as in people who live, has gone up in places without Medicaid expansion and has gone down in places with Medicaid expansion. Now, that's quick policy wonk stuff. You will remember several years ago when the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as health care reform, was undergoing the Supreme Court challenge that the Supreme Court came out and said, surprisingly to perhaps everybody in this room, certainly me, well, the way we're gonna rule is, yeah, it's okay and everything's okay, except you don't have to expand Medicaid. So about half the states have still not expanded Medicaid, and those states now, the ones that have not, actually have higher mortality than those that have. So this is a big public health sort of statistic that health insurance actually probably does do you some good. Um, there you go. But a lot of the reason that people talk about our preventable death rate and our life expectancy being bad is people who do not have access to medical care for a number of reasons. So, okay, what's the difference between access and coverage? What's access? Well, you can have coverage and you live in Southwest Virginia and have no access. One more time. You got it exactly right. One more time. You can have coverage. If you live in Southwest Virginia, you could have the best coverage in the world, but access is very limited. There okay, but coverage means? Health insurance. Yeah, insurance. Okay, yeah. Access go. means doctors. Access hospital. means can you see the right person at the right time, at the right place. So those are different things. Coverage. Yes, sir. I was just going to say that the current thing about the uh, VA hospitals, all those people are covered, but they don't get access. Exactly right. Don't get sick in Italy. Everybody has coverage. <laughs> I've practiced medicine in Italy. Yeah, and that's part of the deal is you've got your insurance card. Coverage just means you got your health insurance card. Access means 
you can actually see somebody when you need to. Now, not somebody when you don't need to, which we see a fair amount of. So coverage without access, Southwest Virginia. What's access without coverage? Access without coverage. There you go. Mr. Jefferson's emergency room. Right? You can, you can, anybody by law has access to any emergency room by law, whether you have health insurance coverage or not. Okay, so we have both that are bad. We have bad access and bad coverage. And the bad access and the bad coverage contribute to, it is said, part of our terrible life expectancy. Now, infant mortality is more complicated. So we are pretty terrible there, too, but infant mortality has a lot of factors in it where we are a very, fortunately, you know, there's a lot of different folks in the U.S. and a lot of different places, infant mortality, but whatever, we're the United States and we're still not very good at it. So, in summary, our health care is terrible, our medical care is spotty, sometimes wonderful, sometimes terrible. There is some thought that our terrible medical care indices have to do with our lack of health insurance. Okay? The, the, the number to remember is in middle age, that would not be me. In, in middle age, the mortality is exactly 50% higher for the uninsured than the insured. So you die a whole lot faster. Um, you know, example, the University of Virginia has a clinic in Southwest Virginia at Wise where people line up. I have a slide of a quarter of a mile of people lining up for medical care. And three or four years ago, I saw a man who said, you know, I've just had some sort of fullness in my stomach. I'm just not feeling real good. Well, he had a bladder tumor that was about that size. That had anybody seen this guy in the last two or three years would have picked it up. That's the kind of stuff that having no access or coverage does for you. So the, the, the thing here is um, we've got islands of wonderful. We just have, as a country, sort of a problem with health care. Okay, the next. Our health care is most expensive in the world. True or false? Okay, true. Anybody want to say false? <laughs> okay, what if I'd said our medical care was most expensive? Of, okay, nah, 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 you got it. Okay, we don't know what our health care costs. We know exactly what our medical care costs. Okay, our medical care, unfortunately, there's a paper that comes out every year in this in the big journal called Health Affairs that calls it national health expenditures, but it's not. It's national medical expenditures, okay? So how wide would you like to, would you like to cast the net for health expenditures, as in prisons, as in traffic courts? So the things that kill people, right, accident prevention, murders, drug abuse, da 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 that leads to our bad health care indices, therefore, where do you draw the line? And it's impossible. So we don't know what our health care costs. We know what our medical care costs is, and it's absurd. It's about twice the OECD median. Who's next? Who gets second place? Second place, we're worst. Who's second worst? No, nope. pretty damn close to France, but not. Switzerland. 
so they bounce back and forth between Switzerland and the Netherlands. Uh, it's not Canada. Canada's eight. Hmm? Switzerland has good health care. Correct. So their ratios are better. That's right. So our. So why is our medical care so expensive? Our medical care is absurdly expensive. Why is our medical care so expensive? So there's, there's at least we need ten. Well, so wake up. <laughs> Here's an idea. I've heard that a huge proportion of cost of medical care for any one person is delivered late in their life and we have a lot of people that were able to keep alive um, for a long time in their later years or uh, so that's one idea maybe a lot of people who are old go to Switzerland too for <laughs> Salaries and benefits of the healthcare employees. Ah, you mean us. <laughs> yeah, you. Well. What I was going to say is that there's a lot of waste, but also that um, we emphasize technology over preventive care, which is very untechnological for the most part. Yeah, I was going to say, there it is, it fell over. Aha! I'd like to point that better. Yeah, I'd like to point out nobody nobody cared except him. So I, I, I just like I thought you sounded point softer. That out that I can't hear you. No, no, I don't care. Okay, go ahead. I, I think that um, the legal system has something to do with the expenses because my sister just had an episode on Monday where she had some amnesia and they ran CAT scans, MRIs, EEGs, et cetera, et cetera, even though all along everybody thought it was probably just this temporary global amnesia that a lot of people get. But they were not going to let her out of there without doing about 10 tests to make sure it wasn't something else. So let's do a parenthesis and talk a little bit about malpractice. Um, no doubt, no doubt it's an issue, okay? No doubt. The problem comes in trying to assess how big a problem it is, numerically. So, there's a study, a long time ago, uh, and they gave a bunch of obstetricians, but they could have done this with anybody. It just happened to be a study in, in obstetrics. And they gave them 10 cases, and they said, Why, you know, tell us face-to-face -face interview, why, what would you have done in this case and why? So, you know, woman with amnesia, not the obstetrician probably, but, um, and overwhelmingly the answers were, I would get sued. I, I did this study, I did that, I'd do this, because I'd get sued. They then went back and gave the same docs, the same questions, blinded on paper. And the answer came back about 20% I'd get sued and 80% to make money. Uh-oh. So when you're dealing with motivation, got to be careful about who you're asking and how you're asking 
and how you're attributing stuff. Now that's one study, and maybe obstetricians are different from the rest of the world. I doubt it. Um, and so there are multiple motivations for why docs do stuff. We hope it's to make the patient better. We hope that that's way up here. We hope. That's the deal here. But there are other motivations like getting sued, like making money, like I'm curious. It's more of that in specialists and generalists, which has a little bit, I'm a specialist, which has to do a little bit why specialists get uh, a little bit dinged for doing too much stuff. Um, so there are multiple motivations, and the problem is you can't measure motivation without asking somebody. We tried that. There was a thing called the Office of Technology Assessment, the OTA, 20 years ago. And I got to be part of the last OTA panel. <laughs> Maybe they looked at us and said, we don't ever want to do this again. And the, the charge to the panel was to figure out, could you look at a chart and tell whether somebody was practicing defensive medicine? Could you actually look at a chart, not ask the doc, and say, okay, obviously they did this because they were worried about getting sued? And the answer was no. The answer was, in no case could you look at a chart and tell automatically, unequivocally, that that test was ordered because of malpractice. Therefore, a long, boring soliloquy that I just hate to do, that I just did for three minutes, that says it's got to be a problem, but it's very difficult to determine how big. The number is 3%. The number that people talk about is about 3% of of national costs. Now, I would point out that 3% of $2.6 trillion is a pant load. Were I not being recorded, I might even say something different. <laughs> that's a lot of money, okay? I mean, that's a lot of money, okay? But it's just nobody can really tell how much of a problem it is. Okay, so. More, why are we so expensive? Yes, sir. Or, ma'am. Opaque pricing. Opaque pricing. And some oligopolistic supply of medical supplies and, in some cases, of health services. Scream that. Say it a little louder. I think the folks in the back, maybe. Sorry. No, go ahead. Got it. Um, oligopolistic supply, both of medical supplies and, in some cases, of health services, such as large hospital groups. So lack of competition. Okay. We're missing some. Yes, sir. Buyer and the seller are at arm's length from each other, so the invisible hand of the marketplace is tied behind the back, and supply and demand can't work. Yeah, which relates sort of a little bit to what was just said. The, the issue that we don't really pay for our own medical care is a problem, right? It's got names, it's called moral hazard, there's a lot of that stuff out there. But the fact of the matter is, um, if you've got, as does 60-something percent of America, have employer-based insurance, and the insurance company is paying for your insurance, you may have a deductible, but once you've met that deductible, you're done. You get as much as you want, you get it over with in the first three months, and you're done. Um, now, I personal bugaboo. There are people talk about, therefore, healthcare is not a market. Medical care is not a market. And I happen to agree with that for that reason. Now the question, however, is, how are we going to absolutely get the consumer educated? Right? That's the deal here, right? So if you want, if everybody says that healthcare is not a market, and there are lots of reasons healthcare is not a market, 
monopolies, oligopolies allowed, all kinds of things. But probably one of the big problems is information asymmetry. The docs know a lot, the hospitals know a lot, the drug companies know a lot, the patients know a little. And that's not a trivial issue. Here's a statistic that will or won't bother you. We have a questionnaire that we've developed here that asks individuals how they want their health information. Ask each one of you, you get a, you know, 40 or 50 questions, including the last time you bought an appliance, what did you do with the instructions? Right? And it puts you into one of eight groups that says, well, I want my health information this way. Well, as part of that 1,200, the study of the 1,200 random Virginians, we asked, well, how do you really want your, you know, what's your primary source? What do you really want? I just want to ask my doctor. 70%. So that's a big number last time I looked. And so we've got a lot of work to do. Part of it is around convincing the consumer they really want to know outside of going to ask the doc. And we've got to figure out ways to teach people what they want to know in a way that they want it, recognizing this hopefully will not surprise anybody in this room. Half of America has an IQ under 100. It better not surprise you because it's a median, right? By definition, half of America has an IQ under 100. Well, none of the stuff that we put out there is aimed at the IQ of 80. It's just not. And if we did that, those of us in the room with IQs of 103 would get angry. The rest of you higher, I, with my IQ of 103. And so what we've got to do is personalize this stuff. Um, we, we did an analysis as part of this of the American Diabetes Association information for patients about diabetes. And remember, we've got eight, you know, people fall into eight different categories. This one hit none of them. The American Diabetes Association standard information for patients did not hit any of the eight. It went right through the middle of all of them. And so it, it's, I think if we are gonna educate people, we've gotta figure out, number one, how to educate them in a way that they want it, and two, to make them care enough, no matter what their IQ or level of education is, that they really want to know and not just ask the doc. Now, nothing wrong with asking the doc, but it surprised me about how many people said that. I hope, I hope that changes. So the information asymmetry is a little more complicated and, and, and is, I think, going to be really tough to deal with. Now, interestingly, which I actually proposed 14 years ago, there is a thing in the Affordable Care Act called Navigators. And it's actually written that way. And there are all kinds of different, unfortunately, I wish they'd called them Harriet. Because navigators, if, if, if you think you've heard the term navigators in healthcare, the problem is that there are about literally five different definitions. But the one in the Affordable Care Act is somebody that will sit with you and help you figure out what insurance plan you need, which is terrific. That's terrific. And I, again, I wish they'd call them Harriet or Charlie or something instead of navigators. But this information asymmetry is, is a big problem, big problem here. Because we all want choice. There isn't a big problem in London because there ain't no choice. So it's a problem here because, and it's a good problem to have because we do. Okay, why else are we expensive? We're missing some, yeah. Um, I'll look forward to hearing. I think this might be the most, uh, the worst of the issues. We do things in this cu culture that make people sicker. For example, 
about a quarter of our young people now are obese. And obesity correlates with many different illnesses. Another example, when I was a young person, uh, uh, the autism rate was about one in 100,000. Now it's one in 68. And we're on track in another couple of decades to be one in two for autism. Those people need care that other people don't, not mentioning the other problems that we're confronting. Ain't none of you said anything wrong yet. We're missing some. Yes, sir. Ah, okay, so we're getting there. So, the what, because he didn't have the microphone, the insurance companies have, I, I mean, they're interestingly, in that article in the New York Times, they did talk about the high cost of insurance company executives, and they only quoted something like 968000 for this one guy, and that is low. They, they thought that was high. Uh-uh, I know better. So, but those are sort of one-time things. What you were talking about is that, you know, there are 10, 15 major insurance companies. They've each got different rules. And it's nuts. Uh, people have actually estimated that cost. And that cost, now think in terms of, and we'll sort of, since we're getting there, um, we waste half of our medical care dollars. The answer is a third. Okay, so we're, we're going we're gonna to talk for a little while about why we spend so much and why we're so expensive. But that has to do with, as was just said, part of that's waste. We waste, now, take a number, since I don't divide 2.6 terribly well, if you sort of say, what's a third of 2.4 trillion? 800 B billion dollars a year we waste. One more time, folks. We waste 800 billion dollars a year. Whoa, that's a fair amount of money. Okay, that's a fair amount of money. Now, think in terms, because, you know, it's sort of like that's like the gross national product of what? Think in terms of funding the entire Affordable Care Act for the uninsured. It's around $150 billion a year. It started out at 100 Remember that whole big deal about $1 trillion over 10 years? And we're not going to go, yeah, right. So around, pick a number, because it's easier to, to deal with, $100 billion a year to fix the uninsured problem. We waste eight times that. If we could capture one-eighth of the waste, we could pay for all the uninsured. Whoa. So think some more now, again, if this, the, the two are tied together, of why are we wasting, you know, what is all of this that we are spending money on and a lot of waste. Go. Prescription drugs are definitely one of the ways we spend a lot of money. Um, huh? We have prescription drugs. We have ways to um, treat people for chronic conditions now, but like hepatitis C recently in the news, $1,000 a day to provide prescription drug coverage for these individuals. Is well, yeah, we're sort of back to the last year of life probably with some of those. Um, so we got expensive drugs. And we got expensive drugs given for some things that people might think, um, you know, there might be other different ways of spending that money. What's the definition of waste? When I said we waste a third of our bucks, what's waste? Something you don't get anything back from. Okay. Other anybody else? Waste. What are we talking about here? Overutilization, more. Redundancy. Redundancy, okay. I want to come back to the distinction between 
doesn't do any good and does a little good, or doesn't do enough good. So waste is easy to say it's something that doesn't do any good for the patient or it harms them. That's easy. No problem. But what about back to what we were just hearing about? What if a drug costs $46,000 a month and it prolongs life by three months? Now that doesn't not do any good. That would fail our definition if we say it doesn't do any good. Now we're going to say it does a little good. And how are we going to deal with that definition? How are we going to define doesn't do enough? Okay, now that's one of the big problems in some of these end-of-life issues um, of, and, and the Brits have, have done a lot of work in this area. Um, interestingly, so what they do in England is they have a cutoff that they break a lot, but they have a cutoff of cost and projected effectiveness. Okay, so there's a thing called cost effectiveness. There's, there's a real number, you know, we tend to get jargony and say, well, that's not cost effective. Cost effective has a meaning. It's how much it costs divided by how many years of life you add. That's what cost effective means. So it's better if you don't actually have that number to say it's expensive, or it doesn't work, or it's cheap, but cost-effective actually has a meaning. How many years of life, how much money? Okay, so the Brits have a, an agency that looks at cost-effectiveness and says, we're not gonna approve the use of drugs that, that don't meet a certain threshold. So that's where the Brits, that's where the Germans, there are a lot of countries that are starting to, to do that. The United States in the Affordable Care Act has prohibited the use of cost in analyzing whether healthcare dollars are spent by Medicare. One more time, ladies and gentlemen. The United States is prohibited in the Affordable Care Act from considering cost. What? So we got a lot of work to do if we're gonna if, if we're gonna say, gee, let's look at what what things, how do we get rid of cost when we ain't allowed to look at it? Okay, so there's this marvelous sort of thing called comparative effectiveness. There's a whole big mother institute that's about comparative effectiveness, but all it's permitted to do is say aspirin works better than Tylenol. It ain't allowed to say aspirin is also 12 billion percent cheaper. Not allowed to do that. Yes? Do you have any idea how that provision got written into the... Uh... <laughs> uh, if you do, tell us. Wasn't prohibited Yes, it was. Uh, what they specifically prohibited was the use of quality-adjusted life years in, in analysis of... But, but it's, Medicare has not been permitted to look at costs for a long time. But if you know, tell us. Pharmaceutical companies have anything to do with it? Well, you said that I know, not what I want to guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, why are we so expensive? More. I just have a quick follow-up on the, on the comments about healthcare in Europe. Is it possible to buy private insurance outside of the public system that would oh, yeah. let you get paid for things where the quality isn't high enough? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well, you get an exercise. <laughs> Yay! Um, you pay for by each service and not by the outcome. Ah. Ah. Okay. So now we're getting there. So, so there is this marvelous thing called fee for service. And 
fee-for-service is how docs get paid. The more you do, the more you get paid. Now, as we were talking about before, you would not like money to get into the top five reasons that docs do stuff. You really wouldn't. And I really do not, I really don't, I do not uh, almost, you know, I spent a lot of time around these places. I don't think that I can point to anybody that that's their prime motivation. I, I don't think I've ever seen that. So, I mean, you want to do the right thing for the patient. However, statistically, docs who are paid fee-for-service, meaning if I do that operation, I'm going to get paid, and if I don't do that operation, I ain't going to get paid. Statistically, the docs that get paid fee-for-service do more of those things than the people who don't. Big surprise. Okay, so that's why you will hear a lot over the next several years about alternative payment mechanisms for physicians. What they're talking about is getting rid of fee-for-service. And there are a bunch of, different, bunch of different ways to do that. One is called salary. Gee, there's a novel idea. Um, if you go and you look at the five places that are pretty much considered the best health outcomes in the country, Kaiser, Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, Geisinger, Intermountain Healthcare in Utah, all their docs are salaried. Whoa, here's a number. Whoa. FYI, the docs here are salary. So there. Um, so the idea is that you want to take out of the equation the temptation. Just get it out of the equation. Just don't think about it. I'm going to think about the right thing 100% of the time to do for the patient, and not even that 4.834% in the back of my brain that says, and oh, by the way, I have a mortgage. So there are a number of ways, salary, and there's a very complicated way in Medicare right now about rewarding for value, for outcomes. Um, it's, it's coming. Uh, many official physicians groups like state medical associations are fighting this like crazy, as you can imagine. It's an interesting just statistical thing if you think about it. Salary does not have to be low, right? What about the, well, I think probably we all ought to come under the microscope. If, if we can develop what you don't want, for any of us, whether it's lawyers or architects or any of them, you don't want, you shouldn't want anything other than the benefit of the person that you're working with to get in the way. And however people want to figure that out, God bless them. Okay, so fee-for-service, yes, ma'am? The fee-for-service, um, you were saying that uh, physicians do more of those things if they happen to be fee-for-service as opposed to a salaried. Can you be more descriptive about how that was measured? And oh, sure. Because um, if you look at pure numbers, maybe they're, they're more patients. So, so the one that's the most recent, because I've got it in a paper, if you want to look at the specific, so there's two papers. If you look up Garson and Academic Medicine in the last two years, and one of those is referenced in the most recent paper, and they actually did pathologists. And they compared pathologists who got paid fee-for-service for reading slides versus 
folks, you know, double-blinded, controlled, all that stuff. Um, and they did a whole bunch more extra tests. But it's, it's take a look, it's, it's in that paper. Per case. Huh? Oh, uh, so per case per, they were doing more. Per thing that was done, yeah. Um, there's, now, what would, what's, so you're asking for a head-to-head -head comparison, which is what I answered you. But if you think about the data in spine surgery, that there is a 600% variation across the country, as in six times as many people in, and the one that usually gets picked on is Miami, and the one that usually is the other end is Salem, Oregon. But in, in different parts of the country, coronary bypass surgery, 400% variation, same outcome. Um, spine surgery, 600% variation, same outcome. Now, those studies, just to be clear, get dumped on a lot because it's hard to adjust for the severity. They try to adjust for the severity of the patients, but in some they do well and some they don't. The point being, whether it's twice as high, three times, or four times, or six times as high, it shouldn't be at all. So, you know, it, it, it's directionally that, that there, the different ways in which people do stuff around the country is less evidence-based than you would like. Yes? I'd be interested just to, to look into the details, just because it's such a hard thing to measure. Um, you know, some people might say an efficient physician, you know, might have more people coming through and therefore be doing more stuff, more things, um, whereas, and maybe they're incentivized in that way, you know, versus um, somebody who's spending more, more time per patient or, you know, uh, seeing fewer patients. Yeah, this is usually procedures that they're talking about. And then referrals based, you know, if it's a higher usually level of acuity procedures. and then some more people who are referred, you know, it's just a hard, it's a, there's so many Absolutely. variables. That, um, I, I don't think, I mean, there's too much stuff out there about fee-for-service to say that it's a good thing. So, so we can discuss different ways in which we get there, but, but by and large, it, it's, it's under attack anyway. So real quick, the big ones. Administrative waste. How many times would you like to be asked your date of birth in, in the third clinic visit that day. Okay, you talked about repetition. So there's two kinds of repetition, unfortunately, right? There's, I got that chest x-ray yesterday over there. Why can't you see it today? There's worse, which I think has to do either with ego or money or both, which is, oh no, they don't do that MRI well. We have to repeat it here. Huh. Huh. Okay, so there's repetition in a number of ways. Okay, and it ain't just you can see yesterday, oh, no, 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 they, they don't do it right. So there's administrative inefficiency. Billing clerks. Two billing clerks per doc in the United States. How many do we need? None. <laughs> Absolutely none. All right, there are systems in place right now to do automated billing if, if the world, I, want, I can't be sleeping beauty because I'm too ugly, so I want to be sleeping ugly. I want to come back in 10 years and have the electronic medical record bestowed upon me, interoperable, everybody's got it. Okay, then you don't need a billing clerk. Done, finished, it's automated. So think about the administrative waste, right? Uwe Reinhardt, who, Many of you may have heard of wonderful health economist at Princeton, gave a talk at the American College of Cardiology in the middle of the 2008 re depression thing and said, you know, you guys really spend a whole lot on billing, but please don't eliminate it now because we need the jobs. Okay? So, lots of waste. Um, lots of ways addressable. Paying docs differently, probably. And a lot of these are in sort of $100 billion increments. Different ways of paying docs, about $100 billion. 
administrative waste about 200 billion. So think in terms of big mother things, but everything you've said is right. Now I want to really irritate everybody at the end so that you'll go out of here with your jaws locked. It's two o'clock. We'll, we'll split the difference and take seven minutes with preventive care saves money, true or false. So how many true? Preventive care saves money. Everybody's awake. How many say false? As with all the rest of this, it depends, right? So here's the deal. Really, really well done study by, of all things, the CBO, published in JAMA two Novembers ago, and looked at what would happen 30 years later to the United States budget if a cigarette tax of 50 cents were added. Obviously, it's going to save money, right? Right? You increase the cigarette tax by 50 cents, people smoke less. You live longer. You spend more. And you don't live longer in the years that you're working. You live longer in the years you're not working. So the productivity argument doesn't work. So smoking actually Now, I didn't make this up, folks. This is in the New England Journal of Medicine, trust me, and it's real. Um, and you can make that argument, unfortunately, for a number of things simply by virtue of saying, well, wait a minute now. The longer you live, the more health resources you're going to use. Well, of course you are. Now, so please. I'll come back to this in a minute, but please do not walk out of here and say, that cardiologist said preventive care is bad for you. Okay? That ain't what I said. What I said was it ain't cheap. Okay? Now, there are a number of studies in middle age that save money. Okay? Think about the simple one. Flu shots. Okay? Flu shots get people back to work. Preventive care saves money. It works. Some, not all, some of the wellness programs, some, depending upon whether, you know, this is now industrial wellness programs, 22% of the stuff of the claims that are in wellness programs are musculoskeletal. And if you can keep people from busting their backs and their legs and their necks and stuff like that, that saves money. Now, you've got to think about the time period because a lot of these preventive care saves money stuff comes out from industries. Monsanto is the one that people talk about a lot. That as long as they can get people to 65 and hand them over to the U.S. government to pay for it, it saves them money. Okay, so this is not as simple as we would think. So what you want to just say is, it's good for you. It's the right thing to do, because we're not here to save money. We're here to be healthy. But it does not always save money. And on that happy note, I will say thank you. Thanks, everyone, for coming, and thanks to Dr. Tim Garson for his engaging and his enlightening um, presentation. And on behalf of the Lifetime Learning Program in the Office of Engagement, the Illinois Association, we'd like to give Tim a small gift of gratitude, and let's give him one more round of applause. 
We do like to uh, work on our reunion seminars every year, so evaluations are critical for us um, to see what you thought and also for you to recommend future speakers or future things that you'd like to see. The Lifetime Learning Program does send out faculty and staff around the world, and so wherever you are, if you're with the UVA Clubs Program, if you see an email and a faculty, we welcome you to come out to one of those events as well. And then finally, uh, this uh, recording will be on our podcast site as well as other seminars uh, if you missed them here at the 2014 reunion. And with that, uh, thanks so much for coming to this seminar and enjoy the rest of your day and weekend. Thanks so much.